ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Fidelity Active ETFs combine the best of what Fidelity has always offered, an industry-leading approach to active management, decades of proprietary data, and a commitment to help you on your financial journey. All that and the flexibility of an ETF. Visit fidelity.com slash ETFs to learn more. ETFs are subject to market fluctuations and the risks of their underlying investments, management fees, and other expenses. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right. Joining me will be Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. And we have some very interesting topics to get into, including the launch of the first ETF holding zero day until expiration options. Uh, Defiance launched the product last week. And I've got to tell you, I cannot wait to hear Dave's thoughts on this because this ETF seemed to generate quite a bit of backlash, at least uh, in the Twitter or X circles that I traffic in. So we'll hear what Dave thinks about uh, that ETF. And then we're also going to discuss IPOs in ETFs, initial public offerings, and how that process typically works in terms of ETFs adding IPOs to their holdings. Uh, We had this big ARM IPO last week, and I saw this topic resurface. So I thought it'd be good to cover that. And then we'll also talk ETF flows and find out what Dave is uh, watching for the remainder of the year. I'll then be joined by John Davi, founder and chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors, who last month, they launched the Astoria U.S. Quality Kings ETF. This has a fantastic ticker symbol, ROE, like return on equity. And no surprise, this seeks to hold high-quality U.S. stocks. But I would say there are several differentiators here, which I'm going to have John explain. We'll do a little compare and contrast versus an ETF, say, like the iShares USA Quality Factor ETF. And then the other thing is uh, Astoria is also an ETF strategist. They offer uh, ETF model portfolios to advisors and institutions. And so we're going to discuss how John is uh, viewing the markets right now and how that impacts Astoria's portfolio construction. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Laura Mayfield, Senior Portfolio Manager, Asset-Backed Securities on Fort Washington Investment Advisors Structured Products Desk. So Fort Washington is a manager on several touchstone ETFs, and we're going to spotlight two of those ETFs in particular. One is an ultra-short income ETF, and the other is a securitized income ETF. And I'm just telling you, Laura knows fixed income inside and out, especially when it comes to securitized fixed income, things like uh, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, CLOs. So this should be a great conversation because I also want to ask her about the basic risk-reward dynamics in fixed income right now. If you've listened to the podcast the past several weeks, you know I have some pretty strong views here, and so I want to get into that with Laura as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nottig. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, great having you back on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Nate. All right, so look, it seems like uh, every week now something new happens in the world of ETFs. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, last week was uh, no different because we saw the launch of the first ETF holding zero day till expiration options. So the ETF is the Defiance NASDAQ 100 Enhanced Option Income ETF. The ticker symbol is QQQY. And then actually today... Defiance is also launching the S&P 500 Enhanced Option Income ETF, so ticker J-E-P-Y, which I I wonder where they uh, got that ticker from, JEPI. But (laughs) as usual, Dave, (laughs) let's uh, start with some basics, and then we can get into more uh, detail. Do you want to just explain what zero day until expiration options are? I I think the label is pretty clear, but I'd like to have you explain these. I, I, I don't know, Nate. It seems pretty obvious to me. That means it's literally the options that expire today. And, uh, you know, these, these daily options, as it were, have become a, a very large part of trading in the most liquid equity names. So think Tesla, NVIDIA, folks like that. Uh, but also in the index side as well. Like a lot of this gets traded on spies and queues. Um, you know, a lot of people trying to basically make short-term calls on where you know these individual securities are going to move by the end of the day so it's really become the honeypot if you will for speculators uh and and to put that in perspective zero data expiration options i.e those expiring today or tomorrow uh are are now about 50 percent of all options trading about five years ago they were about five percent of all options trading so this has really exploded uh, on the back of a couple things, uh, you know, not the least of which is the increased access to options trading through platforms like Robinhood during the pandemic. Pandemic, I think a lot of people learned about options for the first time then, certainly got their accounts approved to trade options for the first time. Uh, and if you were basically a degenerate gambler, uh, there are very few places better to go than zero data expiration options. The kind of leverage you can theoretically get uh, when you when you sort of factor in how the option moves based on the underlying, it's possible to get close to a thousand to one leverage where you basically put a dollar to work and get a thousand dollars of exposure, recognizing, of course, that if you take a bet that big, chances are you're losing all your money anyway. Uh, right. Because these are options at the end of the day. They're either worth something or they're worth nothing. Yeah. Very simply, I call these daily bar bets. And if you're taking that kind of leverage, maybe uh, you are in a bar. have had too many uh, beers to drink. But um, <laughs> if you look at that defiance uh, ETF that launched last week, again, ticker QQQY, this is writing at the money or up to five percent in the money puts on the NASDAQ 100. And the prospectus yep. says that uh, this ETF is seeking a minimum daily income of 25 basis points, 0.25%. They're trying to generate a uh, higher yield than writing longer dated options. And, and you heard me allude to this at the top. I, I did feel like, and again, this is just on Twitter or X. It's a small circle. But I did feel like there was a lot of uh, backlash. And maybe backlash is too strong of a word, but you get what I'm saying. And so I'm very curious to hear what you think of this strategy. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, in general, I'm all for innovation. Um, I understand the allure here because we've seen so many folks move into these zero data expiration options. There is obviously a lot of money to be made in the market making around these options. However, I think it's important to point out that there are a lot of like strange things that happen because so much money moves into the options market, right? Risk never gets destroyed. It just gets moved around. And when everybody piles into these zero data expiration options, it has the effect of putting the dealers uh, in this interesting position of having to manage these enormous gamma positions. That is, they have to hedge based on how the underlying moves very, very quickly And it actually can have these very strange uh, effects of pinning the market to certain positions, uh, certain price points that don't necessarily make sense because as a position moves closer and closer to the strike point, the dealer may have to be either buying or selling depending on what their positioning is, uh, which can force them to either pin towards a given price or in the worst case scenario, actually run away from that price and de-hedge and contribute 
to you know either the acceleration up or down a give, of a given position. So I'm not a big fan that a lot of money is going to move towards these. I understand why folks might want to get into the business of writing this kind of volatility and collecting the kind of fees that can be collected right now. But I, I think just wrapping this in an ETF does not change the fact that these are speculative vehicles. Yeah. I understand they're being sold as income vehicles. But I still think of them as very speculative. But, but wait here, going back to your, your initial point there. So do you worry about any uh, market structural type issues here? Putting the ETF aside, I, I want to come back to that again in a minute. But you mentioned earlier how these zero data expiration options have really exploded in popularity now around 50 percent of, of all options volume. I, I believe that's up from like 5 percent in 2016. So do you have some, again, market structural type concerns here? Uh, yeah, I absolutely do. And and really, if you want to, if you were a, an actual day trader right now, uh, you know, a Mike Green from Simplify, a Chem Carson, somebody who's really in the market working on this, the thing that you're worried about is the implied gamma book of the options dealers. That's now become one of the most important factors in being in the market. To heck with earnings, right? To heck with, to heck with exogenous flows. Understanding that every point, like I'm literally looking at this right now, every point move in the S&P 500 right now has an implied minus $672 million of flow. So that that doesn't sound like a huge number in institutional space, but it does mean that if we saw the S&P say move up 50 points, you would expect there to be negative billions of dollars in flow, which tends to actually pin that back down, right? It acts to compress volatility. Tomorrow, that gamma position could be positive $800 million and have the opposite effect. And if you don't know that, you should have no business day trading these things. With that ETF itself, QQQY, I just want to make sure I have this right. My understanding is this will do well um, income-wise when the NASDAQ 100 is up or trends sideways, uh, right? But unless I'm missing something, investors do have full downside exposure here, right? Outside of the premium income that's collected, which will offset some of that downside move. move uh, uh, otherwise, isn't it full yeah, downside well, exposure? With the, with the enormous caveat that what we're talking about is large, I mean, in the zero data expiration options market, large amounts of leverage, very minimal amounts of data, very minimal amounts of time decay, right? There's right. really no... There's not a lot of risk here in the sense that there can be a giant systemic blow up because at the end of every day, these things have to go flat, right? They, they, that's the point of them, right? At the end of the day, they don't exist anymore. It's hard to blow up a company on something that doesn't exist anymore. So I'm not worried about it in the sense that we're going to have some sort of hidden crack in the system that creates a Lehman moment or anything like that. I'm just saying we're having effects on markets that are not all that well understood and piling a bunch of ETFs onto this that look like you know massive income generators, I'm not sure is going to help that situation. Yeah, I think I'm aligned with that. I think my concern with a strategy like this is that to, to what I, I think you're alluding to, there might be tail risks that aren't fully appreciated. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm no options expert. I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm an expert. But this strategy just feels a little bit like, uh, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Like you, you collect your there, there nice is. income, right? Things seem fine. And then one day you're going to wake up and, and boom, you'll have been completely flattened. And, and maybe that's a little extreme, but I just feel like with a lot of these options-based strategies, it can be uh, difficult for the average investor or advisor to, to completely get their head around all of the risks involved. But that premium looks so juicy at premium income, yeah. right? It looks great. And to be fair, like we should point out that this is being in the business of the one writing that risk, not the one taking that daily risk, right? right? So the idea is that QQQY is going to be selling to the degenerate gamblers that are trying to buy these things going into the close every day. Uh, and that, you know, selling things to degenerate gamblers sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, but, you know, to, to your point, these are relatively new at the size they are right now. I do worry about market structure implications and, and things we don't know yet. And we should also point out these things are very expensive. Aren't they charging like a 0.9 ER or something like that? Yeah, I think it's actually 99 basis points. But uh, yeah, okay. to your point, yeah, you have to overcome a, a point hurdle before you even get out of the gate here. Yeah, and, and we should remind people you can get 5% for sitting around now. Yeah, so, like, good you, point. you got to pay attention to that. <laughs> All right, let's move on and talk uh, IPOs and ETFs. So again, I mentioned at the top, this topic uh, resurfaced with the ARM IPO last week. And if you look, September is already the second best 
last month for IPOs this year, and it looks like that'll continue. I believe Instacart is uh, IPOing today. Clavio, the the marketing firm, is set to list soon. Uh, Birkenstock recently filed for an IPO. There are some others out there. And so I I thought it'd be good to touch on this. Um, I I guess first, if you look at that ARM IPO, I would say, look, that was very successful by any measure. If you look at that, I mean, any – just quick thoughts on on the overall health of the IPO market right now. That that seems pretty good. Uh, I would say it's okay. I mean, we should point out that IPOs are off still from last year. I think we're at about 110, 120 IPOs this year. That's about a third off the pace from last year. Um, no, that that was a, again a, re- a reasonable uptick. So you know, I, I would say it's fine. I wouldn't say it's red hot. Um, you know, I think the the kinds of IPOs that we've seen, you know, you, you know, Arm, obviously, fantastic company catching a bunch of AI buzz around it. But, you know, not without hair. It's got a super low free float. Most ETFs won't be able to pick it up. Most indexes won't be able to pick it up. Um, so it really has been a time when I think you needed to be tactical. But all that said, we should point out like the, the big IPO ETF, which is the Renaissance IPO ETF with the convenient ticker IPO is beating the S&P 500 by like 16% this year so far, largely on the back of its Airbnb and Palantir positions, which are both four baggers just on the year. Um, So there is definitely some heat in the IPO market. With that said, my big caveat here is there's no reason to expect IPOs as a class of securities to over or underperform the market. Right. If you, it, you to believe that, you have to believe that the entire capital structure is just enormously inefficient and nobody understands the rules of the game. As a block, I don't think investors should be thinking about IPOs as an asset class. But if you really want to play, boy, that Renaissance IPO fund has had a good year. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think you and I have talked about this before. Uh, before. I don't believe ETF investors should really care about this unless you are – specifically trying to play IPOs through something like that Renaissance IPO ETF. You know, I just feel like if you're an ETF investor, one of the huge benefits is that you don't have to worry about this stuff, right? Exactly. The, the index exactly. figures it out for you. And I, I'm not saying you should not know what you own. Of course you should. I just don't think if you're, say, a long-term Vanguard ETF investor, you should really care about this stuff. Um, but if you really believe that that this sort of initial run of an IPO is still baked into how we do capital markets and that you get rewarded for buying in that first week, the Renaissance IPO fund is structured to really do that for you. It, it'll actually buy ARM because it's got a 5% free float instead of a 10% free float minimum, um, which some of the indexes are even higher than that, 15 or 20. So uh, it, it gets all of the good, juicy IPOs in as fast as they can. Whether that works or not, I think is a little bit of a random walk, but this year it's been great. On the note of uh, ARM's free float, and I know we could do an entire podcast around this topic, but when it comes to ETFs adding IPOs to their Holdings. I know this obviously gets into the index methodology, or I, I guess what active ETFs have the ability to hold. But high level, do you want to explain some of the factors here? Like, how does that process typically? Yeah. Work? So most most indexes, and frankly, most active managers have aging requirements, um, which tends to mean that either a you know a, an issue has to be on the street for six months, it has to be trading a certain amount. Often there are free float requirements to avoid the situation where, you know, 1% of a company gets listed and then everybody piles into it and then the CEO gets ridiculously rich. Um, so those things are, you know, are real. Um, most of it's an aging requirement. Most of the time it's something like three to six months that's required for it's something to be considered a seasoned issuance. Um, often they have to have X number of reports filed with the SEC post-IPO. That's another way some people do this. Um, it's really only either... Uh, very go-anywhere active funds. I believe the ARC funds can pick stuff up very quickly uh, or index funds that have it in their methodology to grab issues very quickly like the Renaissance IPO fund. Yeah, but I'm just going to hammer home the point we we touched on earlier. I think if you're a longer-term investor, really you should not worry about this stuff, at least in my opinion. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's uh, touch on a few other topics here. Um, ETF flows. So I, I've covered these the last several weeks at a higher level. I was looking this morning, something like $316 billion total into ETFs. If you look uh, a little further yep. down, about $189 billion into equity ETFs, $135 billion into fixed income ETFs. There have been some outflows from uh, areas like gold ETFs, which makes up the uh, the difference there. But anything noteworthy standing out to you this year? Anything particularly interesting? 
Um, you know, it is. Uh, there, there are a lot of headlines about how slow a year it is because we're not going to have a headline, you know, you know world-beating, you know, all-time record. Uh, it's going to be a very healthy year for ETF flows. I think, especially given what we've seen in the mutual fund side of the shop, which is just massive outflows. Uh, if you take money market funds out of the mix, it's just it's been an absolute bloodbath in traditional active, uh, particularly traditional active mutual fund side of things. Uh, you know, I think in terms of what's interesting in the flow stories. Uh, you know, it's hard to not point out just the dominance of tech and comms and consumer discretionary month after month after month. The flows there on the sector side have just been unrelenting. I think we're sitting at like five and something billion on tech and about the same in consumer discretionary and not wicked far off that in communications. Those are pretty massive flows into the sector side of the balance sheet. And then meanwhile, you know, energy and healthcare just can't catch a bid. Uh, and, and I think that that, you know, some of that mimics what we've seen in performance. Certainly, uh, if you look at the, you know, the, the big sector lineups like, you know, XLC and folks like that, uh, you know, the big tech funds, the big consumer funds, they're up huge this year. I mean, XLC is up 41 percent. XLK is up, what, 36 percent. These are massive, massive wins for sector investors who've been chasing that momentum kind of play. The caveat there is the momentum always has another shoe to drop, and you start looking at the charts of some of those funds, and they're looking a little bit toppy. I know a lot of people are getting pretty nervous about them, but it's hard to argue with the performance. It's just been blowout on those three sectors. The odd thing to me about tech, I I saw those sector flows, and and tech is clearly a standout, but if you drill down a little bit further – um, XLK, so the Technology Select Sector Spider ETF. I'm showing that has like $2 billion in outflows. The Vanguard Information Technology ETF, VGT, uh, that has, what, over a billion dollars in outflows. The iShares U.S. Technology yep. ETF, right, IYW, over $500 million in outflows. But to your point, those are all up, what, 35% plus? Actually, IYW, I just pulled that up, that's up 45% um, year to date. So it is kind of odd when you look at the composition, like some of the ETFs that are driving uh, inflows or outflows there. Yeah, it feels that feels very much to me like profit taking. I mean, with the kind of performance run we've seen, we're still on positive inflows for most of the sectors, right? I mean, you know, tech is still up five billion right. so far this year. So yeah, it's had a little bit of a pull down, but nothing compared to what it's been just dragging money in all year long. So that kind of sector dispersion, I think, is pretty healthy. It makes people really understand that there are differences in the economy. Obviously, the consumer story is one that we've been talking about most of this year, the sort of indefatigable consumer discretionary spending um, that seems to be happening. I know a lot of economists are very worried about that turning the other direction in October for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, uh, you know, the moratoriums on things like foreclosures hitting, uh, you know, we've got student loans getting repaid again. All of those things are going to be a little bit of a pullback in terms of consumer spending. And the theory is that's probably why you want to start pulling out of some of these more discretionary sectors. All right. A few minutes uh, left here. I have a couple quick questions to close. Um, first, what's an ETF story or, or two that you're watching for the remainder of the year? Um, I'm. I, this is a little bit inside baseball, but I love the fact that we've had uh, FM, the company behind the, the Treasury ETFs, you know, U2, U10, uh, filing to get mutual fund share classes of their ETFs. I think, uh, I mean, aside from the fact that just makes me smile because it's an inversion of the Vanguard story where they made ETF share classes of their mutual funds and that patent just rolled off. Uh, I love the sort of renegotiation of the rules of the road that seems to be going on here, where you've got the ETF providers trying to get mutual fund share classes so they can get access to things like NAV trading and perhaps retirement plans. At the same time, you've got the other push going on where you've got ETF, uh, you know, mutual funds folks trying to get share class versions for their to turn into ETFs. I think that's going to be a very interesting inside baseball story for those of us that really pay attention. Um, you know, whether or not that matters much, I don't think so. But what it does point to is a wrapperless environment, right? We are headed towards a world very quickly where the average advisor and the average investor is not going to be asking about whether they're getting their exposure in an ETF or a mutual fund or some wisdom tree token that you're trading. All they're going to care about is that underlying exposure. That's a good thing. That's the end state we should all be wanting to reach for. The wrapper should simply be a matter of convenience for what you're trying to get done. 
the ETF wrapper has been the best one we've had for the last decade or two. But boy, I think I think that's changing. And, and I think that's a good thing. You mentioned uh, FM. What a fantastic plug for me. You didn't know this, but uh, FM's Alex Morris will actually be joining me here uh, two weeks from today. Awesome. And we're going to go through this entire share class uh, structure that they're seeking and also just talk about the success of FM overall. I think they've been a, yeah. a huge success story. O- on the note of that share class structure, do you think it's possible, you know, Dimensional has uh, a filing out there, PGIA, any possibility that the SEC gets comfortable before the end of the year, or is this more of a 2024 story? Oh, I don't, I, I don't think by the end of this year, but I do think it'll be next year. I don't think there are any huge blockers to it. I think they're going to be slow and cautious because that's what this SEC is doing with everything. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of other issues going on. Obviously, you know, I don't really want to get into it, but crypto and crypto ETFs, that's obviously another ongoing story that we're going to monitor. And and also, you know, I think we're still not quite done figuring out what it means to be in this higher for longer interest rate environment. I talked to a lot of financial advisors that are really going back to basics and rethinking, well, what does my equity allocation look like? What does my bond allocation look like? What should my new normal be? Uh, sort of getting past this election and thinking about the longer term where we have a more normalized interest rate environment. I mean, at Betify, we're doing a symposium on Thursday on equity. We're doing one on AI on Friday. There's so much interest in how to rethink these core parts of your portfolio. Uh, I don't think that's going away. On the note of a crypto ETFs, I'm I'm staying on good behavior today. We're not going to talk about them, even though I feel like <laughs> you were trying to bait me a little bit. Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm <laughs> trying to push it aside. But like we have, it, it, it exists. If we're talking about big stories, there's no question it's still a big story. Uh, in terms of 2024, just about a minute left here. You are a financial futurist. Is there a, a big ETF story on your radar as you look ahead to, to next year? I need to start thinking about my own 2024 ETF prediction. So maybe I'll steal something from you. Yeah, I think we go back to taking AI real seriously next year. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of snickering and like, oh, look, ChatGPT's volumes are down, whatever. And, uh, you know, other than the NVIDIA story, I think markets have shrugged off a lot of the initial AI hype. Uh, That's fine. That's great. My prediction is that by the end of this year, they're going to be several killer apps in the finance space, both for financial advisors and the average investor. Uh, And those killer apps are really going to change how you think about investing, whether it's analyzing the news or analyzing portfolios or talking to your customers. I think that's going to be a much bigger story next year than folks probably think right now. I I like that. I think there have been so many hyped areas of the market over the past few years that when the AI mania hit, say, late last year, early this year, it was just automatically lumped into that category. If you want to lump that in with crypto and ESG and some of the other stuff where we saw sort of bubbles in in the market. Um, But I I think you're right. This is something that is not going anywhere and is going to be with us for a while. But, uh, Dave, we'll have to leave it there. Always love uh, chatting. Fun topics this week. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. That was uh, Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. The Motley Fool LLC has been recommending individual stocks as part of their subscription newsletter service for over 30 years. Now Motley Fool Asset Management has taken the Motley Fool LLC's top 100 analyst-recommended companies and put them into a single passively managed ETF. It's an instantly diversified portfolio of 100 top-rated large-cap stocks with market-beating potential, all in one low-cost ETF. For more, visit fooletfs.com slash Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. My next guest is John Dobby, founder and CIO at Astoria Portfolio Advisors, who's an ETF strategist currently overseeing nearly $1.5 billion in assets. Uh, they run ETF model portfolios. And not only that, they're also behind two ETFs, the Axis Astoria Inflation Sensitive ETF, ticker PPI, and then the recently launched Astoria U.S. Quality Kings ETF, ticker ROE, which is what we'll be focusing on this week. Uh, John is now joining me from New York. John, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Great. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on again. I like the lead-up song, to, uh, you know, into this session. So that was a pretty cool song. Well, uh, how's everything been going in your world? I feel like uh, every time we visit your uh, assets under management and advisement number, that just continues to increase. Sounds like uh, everything's been going pretty well. 
Yeah, knock on wood, everything's going well. You know, we um, we have a unique value proposition, which you know we could talk about. But you know, I'm I'm glad and fortunate that you know advisors kind of see the vision we have for what we think portfolio construction you know should be, and you know it's, it's an exciting story for sure. We'll talk more about that value proposition. I think many of our listeners are familiar with Astoria, but for those who aren't, just give us a quick snapshot here of uh, what all you're involved with. Okay, cool. So, you know, I think a lot of my peers are basically either pure macro or pure quant. And we like to say we're the intersection of, of macro plus quant. And then we do have like a liquid alt overlay. Um, you know, and some of my peers just have models on platforms, but we operate more like a TAMP where we're going to be bolted underneath the financial advisor, the independent RIA, one of the custodians like a Schwab or Fidelity. And, um, you know, we're going to manage their assets per a risk tolerance, you know. So we have a range of solutions, ranging from, you know, 100% bonds to 100% equities. We've got quantitative stock portfolios that we offer as an SMA, um, ESG strategies, you know, multi-asset, and then more recently the two ETFs, as you mentioned. All right, so let's do this. I, I actually want to come back to the ETF strategist or, or model portfolio side of the equation in a bit. But but let's first highlight your most recent ETF launch, which is the Astoria Quality Kings ETF. Again, ticker ROE. Take us through what this is doing. I know this is actively managed. Obviously, it focuses on higher quality stocks. Take us from there. Yeah, so we, you know, as a fiduciary, you know, managing money on behalf of other financial advisors, we just became, we became uncomfortable with the exposures we were getting you know, with the technology sector and, um, you know, the consumer discretionary sector, uh, you know, communications, you know, some they've reclassified some of these stocks, Amazon, Tesla, you know, Alf, Alphabet, uh, Meta. But, you know, essentially to me, like a lot of those are still technology-oriented companies. So between the tech sector and the consumer discretionary and communications, you know, it's about 50% of the S&P. And, you know, I think like what we had in the last 10, 15 years is just, you know, a lot of deflation, you know, a lot of issuers offering products for free, you know, obviously the growth of independent RIAs, models, strategists, you know, there's just way too much money that went into the S&P, which helped distort valuation. So we just said, look, you know, we, we like U.S. stocks. We like high quality stocks. We just feel like, you know, we should equally weight our exposure. So, you know, by the way, we've been running these quantitative stock portfolio strategies as an SMA, you know, since 2017. And we've been equally weighting our exposures with a much smaller subset. So our strategy takes, you know, we start with a universe of a thousand stocks. We filter for the highest quality. So metrics like ROE, ROA, return on investment capital. We ultimately select a hundred of the highest quality stocks and we sector optimize. So what that means is if tech is 28%, we're going to put 28% uh, exposure, but we're just going to cap each stock at 1%. Okay, so how does ROE compare to an ETF like, say, uh, QUAL, the iShares MSCI USA Quality Factor ETF? And I, I bring that up because that's clearly the most popular quality uh, quality ETF right now. It's in the top 10 of ETF inflows this year, something like $10 billion in inflows. So how does ROE compare to an ETF like that? Is it going to come down to that equal weighting, or are there other factors you would point to? Yeah, essentially that's it. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it, really the equally way is going to be the driver amongst us versus, you know, all of our peers. Um, so without going to specifics about other issuers, because, you know, I, I I shouldn't comment on other issuers' products, um, get, given that we're the sub-advisor for the ROE. But I would just say that, you know, we're actively managed. So here's one important distinction, right? Let, let's say, you know, you have an ETF and it's passive and it gets, you know, billions and billions of dollars and you make it indexed, you know, I have an issue, right? Because like now everyone's going to know that on the third Friday, March, June, Seth, Duck, you're going to be rebalancing. And oh, by the way, you got to publish your index methodology guide. So there's a, a lot of hedge funds out there that will gain, you know, index rebalances. So we just said, look, you know, we're going to be systematic active. We're going to do rules based, but our implementation, you know, doesn't have to be like as regimented, like on the third Friday, at the close, we're going to rebalance. So we just have some other ways to kind of re rebalance. But everything we do is going to be systematic. And then the key for us versus all the other quality peers, which most of them are passive, mm -hmm. is that you know we're going to equally weight our exposures. And I think given the concentration risk we have in the S&P now, you know, I think that's why we've seen a like, pretty quick adoption uh, so far in, you know, in the six weeks since we launched. 
Before we move on here, because again, I do want to talk about Astoria's model portfolios. I think a good segue might be to talk about the quality factor in the context of a portfolio. And I I think it's intuitive that owning high-quality companies is probably a good thing, right? But can you expand on that a little bit? Like, like why own quality in a portfolio? Yeah, and that's that's interesting um, because, look, you certainly wouldn't want to go out and buy, you know, bad quality stocks, let's say. But, you know, I just – there's a lot of research out there. We've published research. You know, there's – you may have had some of these guests on too, you know, big affluent firms, Wisdom Tree, you know, AQR, you know, Larry Swedra. I mean, there's just a, a plethora of research out there that shows when you mix factors in a portfolio, historically, you, you've had, um, you know, we would say like you get higher up on the efficient frontier. So what does that mean? You've had a much more smoother return experience. So quality, if you go back over time, whether you look at you know, some of the data from these uh, quant firms, whether you look at like just the MSCI, you know, indices, like the quality index. I mean, quality will have historically the highest risk adjusted return, or we would say sharp ratio. Again, past performance on indicative future results. But, you know, quality companies will just have like, you know, they, they pay dividends, you know, they have low debt to equity, they have much more stable earnings. Uh, and I find that like, you know, over time, like just managing money on behalf of other financial advisors, like, you know, let's say you get an advisor to say, okay, I'd be willing to buy the momentum strategy. You know, you'll have good years, but then on the bad years, you'll have like much more sharper drawdowns, right? Or let's say you're going to buy the min ball strategy, right? Like that may work well when rates are going to zero, but when rates go up, like min ball won't you know, do as well because it's a more defensive strategy. So I think, you know, we mix factors in a portfolio, but quality just, it's the easiest to explain to the end clients. Okay. Quality is going to buy blue chip companies. They they don't take on excessive debt. They have much more stable earnings, much more consistent, you know, dividend increases. So that's why we lean on quality as a factor. Okay. So with that backdrop, let's talk uh, a little bit about your ETF bottle portfolios and what you're seeing in the markets right now. And, you look, obviously, it's been a good year for stocks. The S&P 500 is up 17%. The NASDAQ 100 is up 40%. We now have Treasury bond ETFs yielding well north of 5%. Just give us your high-level view right now. I know you mentioned earlier the concerns around the top heaviness of some of those market cap-weighted uh, indices. But as you look at the markets right now, how is that manifesting itself in your model portfolio construction? You know, Dave Nodick was the guest before you, and he mentioned, like, you know, financial advisors are, you know, how are they building portfolios? What are they thinking? Like, we do have higher interest rates now, which, you know, we just hadn't seen, right? So take any advisor below the age of 40, let's say. They just never saw, like, an interest rate cycle that we're going through. They never saw an inflation cycle we're going through. So I do think that, like, and we did – you know, partner with Access Investments, you know, to launch this inflation strategy two years ago. I do think we were ahead of the curve because we had thought that, you know, post-COVID, you know, we would live in a higher inflation, higher interest rate world. So if you think about the Fed, what they did was, you know, they they raised interest rates the fastest in half a century, and core PCE, you know, went from four, you know, it went from like six to four, right? The Fed's target's two. So it's still a lot higher So I think, like, our message when we build models for advisors is, like, look, you know, we're not too excited about U.S. index, U.S. large cap, um, just for all the reasons we've been talking about the concentration risk. And then there's something called equity risk premiums, which is, like, the ratio of, like, stocks to bonds and how much you're compensated for owning, let's say, U.S. index large cap stocks versus bonds. And it's just not attractive. And why? It's because bond yields are very high. And we think they'll be stickier and higher for longer. So we've been encouraging advisors in our own strategies. We've been increasing our exposures to, like, Europe, Japan. Um, you know, if you think about some of these, you know, single-country European ETFs, Japanese ETFs, I mean, you know, even broad-based European ETFs, you know, they're up a healthy amount this year, 15 20%, um, you know, as much as the S&P. And then if you strip out the S&P, you know, the seven largest stocks, you know, the market's not – up nearly as much as like some of these single or you know country European and Japanese ETFs. So I think you, you got to look abroad. You got to tilt away from mega caps. Um, and I do think that bonds have a better place in your portfolio. So if you think about some of the craziness we saw years ago, where there was like 
you know, negative interest rates and what that did for people, like basically going out and buying like high yield bonds, buying like going, you know, going out and buying stocks. So we, we, you know, bonds have a much better place in your portfolio. So that's kind of what we've been encouraging and what we're seeing on our side. You, you mentioned uh, inflation and then, uh, of course, this potential for rates to remain higher for longer. We, we do have a Fed rate decision tomorrow where expectations are for no rate hike. But if you look at the latest CPI report last week that did show inflation tick up in, in August, I'm just curious if, if we stick specifically to that topic of the Fed and inflation, how are you viewing uh, sort of that battle right now? Well, I, I think, um, you know, we probably won't have a hike based on what, you know, the CME Fed Watch tool indicates, you know, the, the futures market, what they're assigning for a probability for this meeting. But, you know, I think, like, the issue that we really have is that there's, you know, four or five rate cuts priced into next year, which I don't see that happening. Um, you know, again, we had the fastest rate hike in half a century, and core PCE is at four, and the Fed's target's two. So I think ultimately – the Fed has to, you know, make a decision, right? Are they going to really get this thing down to two and throw the economy into a, a recession? Or are they just kind of let it, like, breathe and, and stay at 3% and just deal with, like, a higher inflation world? If you look at the 70s, I mean, CPI stayed above 5% for 10 years, um, you know, between the 70s and 80s. So I, I think, like, you know, we're living – these are very complex issues, and I'm not the expert, Nate, but – complex issues like deglobalization, onshoring, reshoring, like what does that mean? Like what does that do? Like, you know, you have a supply chain in, you know, Asia, Vietnam. Do you take that supply chain, build it in the U.S.? I mean, I, I think these are like ultimately going to lead to higher inflation, uh, higher, you know, prices for goods and, and services. And I just don't think like portfolios are kind of built and set up for a world of higher rates, higher inflation, um, just because, you know, it's like people are going back, not a bite at the apple, as, as you know, Balchuna says, where, you know, they're going back into tech, AI, and just kind of bidding up these tech stocks, for, which already had bad, crazy high valuations, and just kind of bidding it up again. So um, we, we think inflation is going to stay higher for longer, and the Fed probably has to keep rates at a higher level than what most people anticipate. So. All right, John, two quick questions before I let you go. I, I think as you're aware, we do have a lot of financial advisors who listen to this podcast. And if uh, some of them might be interested in connecting on the model portfolio side w with a story, uh, a story, what's the best way for them to do that? And then the second question is, I I'm just curious, will you use those ETFs, PPI and ROE within your model portfolios? Okay, so the first question is um, AstoriaAdvisors.com, uh, A-S-T-O-R-I-A, Advisors.com, and there's like a message box there. You can just fill out the information, and we'd have, uh, you know, somebody from our firm would contact you. Second question is, I would say yes. Like, we do use our, our ETFs in our models, and we run, we run a range of, of strategies, right? So. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got quantitative stock portfolios that a financial advisor just want stocks. They don't want ETFs. So, um, you know, what I would say is that we would never issue an ETF if we didn't think that we would get behind it and put our own, you know, clients' money behind it because, you know, we just think that we should, like, eat what we cook type thing. Um, I, I feel like, you know, there's firms out there that just launch strategies, you know, AI or cannabis and just, you know, fly-by-the-wheel type strategies, we would never do that. We, we would only launch something that we thought we would use that doesn't already exist. I mean, we're not, you know, trying to compete with the, the big behemoths, but if there's a unique strategy, and both, you know, the inflation strategy and ROE are very unique. I mean, nothing like that exists out there, so that's kind of why we got behind it. So. Well, John, again, great to uh, reconnect. Congratulations on the launch of ROE and, and certainly the continued success of your firm overall. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. That was John Davi, founder and chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Fidelity Active ETFs combine the best of what Fidelity has always offered, an industry-leading approach to active management, decades of proprietary data, and a commitment to help you on your financial journey. All that and the flexibility of an ETF. Visit fidelity.com slash ETFs to learn more. ETFs are subject to market fluctuations and the risks of their underlying investments, management fees, and other expenses. 
Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Joined by Laura Mayfield, AVP and Senior Portfolio Manager, Asset-Backed Securities on Fort Washington Investment Advisors Structured Products Desk. So Fort Washington is a manager on several Touchstone ETFs as uh, Touchstone collaborates with asset managers to sub-advise their funds. And Touchstone currently offers six ETFs about $250 million in assets, and they only entered the uh, ETF space a little over a year ago. Pretty interesting issuer. Laura is now on the line with me from Cincinnati. Laura, it's a uh, pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. All right, so you are a portfolio manager on two Touchstone ETFs. That's the Touchstone Ultra Short Income ETF, ticker symbol TUSI, and the Touchstone Securitized Income ETF, ticker TSEC. And so why don't we do this? Why don't we briefly touch on those two ETFs? And then I would love to get your thoughts on the broader fixed income markets uh, right now. But let's start with TUSI. Just explain the basic approach here. Yeah, sure. So at Fort Washington, as sub-advisor, you know, we have a strong 20-plus year track record managing our ultra-short duration strategy in an SMA vehicle. We've also been sub-advising the Touchstone Ultra Short Duration Mutual Fund for over a decade with that same strategy, and we've had a lot of success in both of those vehicles. So we want to make this strategy as accessible as possible in the market. So last year, we launched it in an ETF vehicle, um, which just hit its one-year track record last month, and that is 2C. Um, So a little bit about how we manage 2C. You know, we're students of the ultra-short duration space, and we see the opportunity to really add value for investors in the front end of the curve by optimizing their cash actively, you know, taking advantage of market inefficiencies that can be exacerbated when you have very short-duration bonds, um, you know, especially trading at a premium and a discount. So a key differentiator for 2C is that we emphasize securitized products, which are generally between half and three-quarters of the portfolio at any given time. So it's a very high-quality portfolio. The average credit quality is, quality is double A minus. It has a duration of point, between 0.5 and 0.6 years right now. And we've built our track record by buying securities that offer an outsized spread for their given volatility or downside risk profile, much of which we source in securitized products. We also uh, shift our emphasis between corporate bonds and securitized as that relative value landscape fluctuates over time. Um, so as an example, you know, corporate spreads have posted a very strong rally since the mini uh, banking crisis wides in March of this year. They're now at year-to-date, year-to-date tights. Um, securitized spreads, meanwhile, are still in the third or even fourth quartile of their historical spread range. Um, it varies from subsector to subsector. And then take that a degree further, you know, our markets are very diverse in the securitized space. There's a lot of variability, not just between subsectors, but also from issuer to issuer and even from bond to bond. Um, there are different cash flow modeling factors and different variables like that that affect the, the relative attractiveness when you get to the bond level. So as a team of deep credit, in the weeds, portfolio managers within our sectors, we're positioned to capitalize on that market dynamic for our investors. Laura, one question I have here is, as I'm sure you're aware, the ultra short income space is one where there have been a lot of ETF launches over the past several years. And there are some pretty big players in this category as well, right? You look at active yeah. products like JPST and, and Mint. 
And so I'm curious what words of wisdom you might offer to investors in uh, evaluating their options here. Because I'll tell you, in conversations that I've had, I, I do feel like some investors and some advisors, they look at this category and they just say, well, these all pretty much look the same. You know, what difference does it make? And so I'm curious what you would say from a due diligence perspective in looking at these types of ETFs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this might be surprising to some people, but the ultra short duration space is actually very diverse. You know, the category is defined by interest rate risk, duration, but not by credit risk. And it's really important that investors understand how much downside volatility potential is in their portfolio and just what the range of investment profiles are that, that, that are available to them in this space. Um, so one way that we think about that is, is by looking at spread duration, which loosely corresponds to weighted average life or the maturity of, of a bond or a portfolio, basically the amount of time until you expect to get your principal back. So a five-year floating rate bond, for example, it might look like it fits in the ultra-short category with a floating rate duration, very little duration. But if we go into a hard recession, that bond is going to reflect the spread and price volatility of that five-year maturity. It's going to have a lot more price downside than what most ultra-short investors would expect out of the ultra-short space. So the most extreme example of this would be that Schwab Yield Plus Fund, the infamous fund. $13 billion fund in the ultra-short duration category that was down 35% back in the, the financial crisis. They owned this paper, long-dated floaters that had significantly more downside risk than what investors realized. Um, so all that said, the ultra-short peer group has a really tight duration range, but it runs the full gamut when it comes to credit risk and volatility potential. So you have everything from very short, high-quality govy funds that just prioritize liquidity and preservation of capital alone. Um, but then you also have at the other end some funds that are really more of a short-duration, high-yield type of risk profile. There's nothing wrong with that either. It's just important that investors understand what they own. So 2C is neither of those extremes. We are focused on generating as much yield as we can without sacrificing liquidity or preservation of capital. And we think of it as kind of the sweet spot for the ultra short duration space. Um, our goal is to generate 100 basis points or more of excess return over money market funds annually and also to be top quartile versus the Morningstar peer group over the long run. So although our ETF vehicle is only just a year old, our other vehicles have been able to achieve both of those goals, um, and the ETF is designed to do the same. All right. The other ETF you're a portfolio manager on is the Touchstone Securitized Income ETF, ticker symbol TSEC. Uh, just briefly walk us through that one. Yeah. So take everything that we like about securitized products that has done well for us in the ultra short space and just shift that out the curve and out on the risk spectrum as well. And you have TSEC. So the focus of the TSEC ETF is to invest in that cross section of securitized markets that has historically produced returns similar to high yield, but with higher credit quality and significantly lower volatility. So TSEC is in the short duration Morningstar category, not ultra short, but short duration. So the one to three year slice. Um, so it has a portfolio duration of about two years and a triple B credit quality. Um, and touching briefly just on the securitized market as a whole, you know, we understand that that reference might take some investors right back to the great financial crisis as their closest point of reference. But these markets have evolved so dramatically since that time. There's, you know, the Dodd-Frank Act, the Volcker Rule, other important regulations. Just the quality of assets and structures in these markets um, has really, really changed dramatically for the better over the years. Um, default performance in securitized has also been really strong versus corporate bonds over the past 10 to 15 years. You know, and securitized products, are it's the second largest part of the U.S. bond market. Um, it's larger than corporate bonds. It's outsized only by treasuries. And, you know, most of your everyday consumer transactions are ultimately tied to this market, whether that's car loans, mortgage loans, student loans, you know, even fast food chains that you transact at. So much of our everyday life is financed by these markets. It's not some big, scary thing. Um, it just requires a little bit of specialization to underwrite the bonds and the deal structures. Um, so at Fort Washington, we manage over $17 billion in securitized products, 
and we have those people and resources to do that work and participate in those segments of the market where you're getting an attractive spread over comparably rated corporate bonds. Laura, on both of these ETFs, I was actually visiting earlier with an issuer who offers uh, active equity ETFs, and they touched on the potential benefits of active management, especially given the current environment. I'd love to hear what you view as the benefits of active management within fixed income. Like, like why should investors consider active versus taking an index-based approach? Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing I'll say is it's going to depend on the manager. We all know that past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. However, some managers have track records that support that, that their investment strategy does what it's intended to do, and others don't. And I think, I think that should matter. Um, but secondly, I think that active duration positioning and active credit risk management also matter. Um, there are periods of time where the market just has too much money to put to work, and technical pressures push spreads tighter on bonds that don't deserve to trade so tight. If you're not actively managing your portfolio through, through those types of fluctuations, you're going to be accepting overpriced risk in certain environments, and you're going to be missing out on cheap risk in other environments. Um, and then lastly, you know, a lot of the alpha we generate across our strategies is in out-of-index securities. Simply put, that's probably the most important thing here. Passive management limits the universe of securities that are even eligible for you. And in our view, that's cutting off some of the most important parts of the market. A few minutes left here. I had uh, mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask you about the broader fixed income markets right now. And just by way of background, I've talked quite a bit recently about the risk reward of shorter duration fixed income ETFs and really uh, treasury ETFs or very high quality investment grade corporate ETFs, even something like a 2C, just compared to longer duration ETFs. So say something like a 20 plus year treasury ETF. And to, to me, it just seems so obvious to take that shorter term five and a half percent yield or, or whatever, take no duration risk, minimal credit risk versus venturing out on the yield curve or, or credit risk spectrum. And I certainly get the reinvestment risk here. I've, I've talked about that as well. I, I understand that risk if you just park on the, the front end of the curve. But I'm very curious how you view uh, this risk reward right now. And maybe, maybe we can take this in two pieces, start with duration risk first, and then we can come back to, uh, to credit. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important question, and it's one of the most pervasive topics of discussion on our trading desk right now on a day-to-day -day basis is duration positioning. Um, the basic issue that you've alluded to, the treasury curve inversion, um, the peak of the entire curve is in that four- to six-month tenor right now at about 550. Um, and if you want to move out to the 10-year, for example, you have to be willing to give up 115 basis points of yield just from the curve inversion. That's a, a really tough pill to swallow. Um, the flip side, obviously, is when the Fed decides to cut rates, that front-end yield is going to evaporate quickly. So um, the stakes are high either way. Uh, our approach has been kind of a, a break-even analysis type of a, a way of thinking about it. We've had a very short duration bias for several quarters now. Um, and in is the 6 to 12 month part of the curve specifically for 2C. The inversion of that part of the curve has softened a bit lately and we've started extending duration a little bit, reinvesting more out into that one, one and a half year part of the curve in our ultra short portfolios. And then in TSEC, we've actually added a small position in 20 year treasuries as well to extend our overall portfolio duration slightly. Um, you're not getting punished as much as you were for moving out the curve a little bit. But the risk of being caught too short is very real. So we're trying to balance that. We want to lock in these attractive yields for as long as possible, but without paying too much in order to do that. What about on the uh, credit risk spectrum? And maybe you can talk investment grade versus high yield where, you know, if you look right now, credit spreads and high yield, they're still pretty darn low. And so how do you view the current risk reward there? Yeah, overall, we're cautious about downside recession risk here, downside spread volatility risk, especially in corporate credit where spreads have gotten pretty tight. You know, you're just not getting paid to add credit risk in short duration corporate bonds. Um, the flip side of that is that we also see spreads in some of the securitized markets are still at historically attractive levels, you know, third, fourth quartile from a historical spread perspective. Um, we like the spreads and all-in yields we're getting in high-quality securitized, um, but I don't think it makes sense to be adding credit risk right now in there either. 
Um, and just taking a step back for a minute, you know, in Tusi, for example, when we're buying 12 months AA credit quality ABS with a 650 to 675 yield to worst profile, which is a trade we've been doing recently, that's a high quality trade we like, and that's just a lot of yield. Any way you slice it, um, I just don't think we need to, nor should we be piling into credit risk as long as that type of high quality profile is available to us. I agree with that. I keep saying, and again, this isn't investment advice. Everybody do your own homework, but I agree <laughs> with that view. Yeah. It's just too compelling uh, right now. But uh, Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent uh, perspective. I really appreciate the insights into the current markets right now. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. That was Laura Mayfield, AVP and Senior Portfolio Manager, Asset-Backed Securities on Fort Washington Investment Advisors Structured Products Desk. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. If you're looking to build a strong portfolio core or interested in capturing unique investment opportunities, I would encourage you to attend Vetify's Equity Symposium on September 21st. Registration is free at etftrends.com slash webcast slash equities dash symposium. Next week, I'll be joined by BNY Mellon's Matt Camuso. Uh, We're going to take a look at their ETF lineup. And then Newberger Berman's Hawk and Kaya will spotlight their commodity strategy ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.